0: Welcome to Bank of Singapore Unplugged.
1: So I'm sure many of you have noticed food prices, they are soaring. Eggs don't cost what they used to. Uh, Let's not even get started with chickens, right? And we know that this has been driven by a mix of supply-side bottlenecks from COVID-19, climate challenges, as well as the Russian-Ukraine war. And because of that, food security is now top of the national agenda for many governments, and it's also a growing concern for consumers. Well, we're going to deep dive a little bit into what's happening in the agri-food space this evening. So I'd like to invite my panelists uh, to join me for this discussion titled The Hurricane of Hunger. Please welcome Mr. Tan Yong Nang, the executive director and CEO of JAPFA. Mr. Bavir Shah, the Vice President of ESG and Climate-Related Research at MSCI, Ms. Agna Rakowski, the Co-Portfolio Manager of Impacts Asset Management, which is an affiliate of BNP Paribas. So let's get right to it. Uh, I would like to direct my first question to Bavir. What are some of the key insights that we're seeing right now in the food revolution space and what changes are happening in the food and agriculture value chain, Bavir?
2: Yeah, thank you. So when we used to answer that question a few years ago, you know, what is moving on in the food and beverage space um, in the whole supply chain, it used to be really the cutting edge that we talk about. So it would be anything from food engineering all the way through to alternative proteins, um, right the way through to even putting AI on tractors to improve yields, right? But I think this year has been back to basics. And that's been the key um, sort of driver, the, the key um, new thing that the sector has had to think about, which is as much as the cutting edge is important, it doesn't replace or it doesn't substitute or it doesn't you know compensate for when you have problems um, at the root. So I think one thing has definitely been back to basics, supply chain, um, you know, back to the ingredient list sometimes of the pr- products that are being produced. I think the second issue that's been quite big for the you know food and agriculture industry in the background, um, but very important is being policy. So regulation and policy, we don't think of it as being that important for this sector. It's actually pretty big. And you know whether it's been you know, bans on food or fertilizer happening with some countries. Or whether it's been more a drive, you know, a little bit further in the background with, let's say, you know, uh, uh, regulation on, on certain types of um, innovative food. Uh, regulation has been quite big. And then third thing has probably been sustainability, where this sector has been forced to really think about this and forced to integrate this at every stage in the supply chain. So. Back to basics, regulation, and sustainability, I think, are the, the three things, yeah.
1: Back to basics, regulation, sustainability. Okay, we're going to hold that thought because we're going to go uh, come back to it in just a little bit. I want to circle to Agna right now and give us your perspective. Uh, how are agri-food companies being impacted right now by this triple whammy of supply chain disruptions, as mentioned by Bavir, uh, the Russian-Ukraine war, uh, as well as climate change? What have you observed?
3: Of course. Well, what we've witnessed over the last couple of years is just how incredibly fragile the food supply chain can be. The current system looks to maximize efficiency rather than be more resilient to shocks. And so it's not surprising, as you say, that as a result of these shocks, food security has risen to the top of the agenda, particularly for countries that are heavily dependent on food imports. And so agri-food companies have been impacted in several ways by these disruptions. One example is when coronavirus first emerged, many slaughterhouses and meat processing plants were forced to shut because they became COVID hotspots. We saw this all over the globe, but the impact was greatest in the U.S. because the industry there is so much more consolidated. If you shut down one plant, you can take out as much as 5% of national capacity. And that can, of course, lead to shortages on supermarket shelves. Uh, this happened for a few reasons. Um the environments are closed; they're biosecure, and 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 so once you have a worker who has the virus, it will get recirculated. It's quite low mechanization, especially uh, when producing pork and cattle uh, products, and you have long production lines uh, with you know very crowded people standing shoulder to shoulder. So it's you know it's a perfect environment for that spread. At the peak, utilization rates across the industry were down something like thirty-five uh, to forty percent. And the industry since then has had to spend hundreds of millions of dollars just to be able to get that production back online. They've had to invest in air conditioning, plastic dividers, temperature checks, etc. More recently, the war in Ukraine has led to shortages of crops and agricultural inputs. Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of grains like wheat and corn, as well as oilseeds and fertiliser. And low-income countries in North Africa and Middle East are particularly at risk here because they depend heavily on imports from those two countries. As well as shortages of grains, we may also see some lower crop yields across the globe because of lower application of fertilizer. Fertilizer prices are up something like 200% compared to pre-COVID levels. Back in April, we saw Indonesia ban exports of palm oil in order to be able to increase um increase the supplies domestically and to protect the domestic consumer from inflation. Indonesia represents about 50% of global demand for palm oil, so the impact, as you can imagine, was very significant. India then followed suit and restricted exports of sugar and wheat. We may see this elsewhere as well, you know, as governments use protectionist policies to protect the domestic consumer. And we may also see it spread to other staple foods like, like for example, rice. And then climate change is another major threat to agribusinesses. Climatic shocks and extreme weather events are double what they used to be 20 years ago. And this has meant that in many geographies, the agricultural regions have either changed or shrunk altogether. And what does that mean for farmers? Well, it means ultimately lower yields.
1: Thank you for that, Agna. You've painted a pretty bleak picture. picture, uh, but let's get some on the ground firsthand account of what's going on. And I want to come to yong for this one. At JAPFA, the company specializes in five staple proteins that's built within a vertically integrated business. How have recent events impacted the business? And what else is JAPFA doing to prepare for increasing food consumption, given that the global population is expected to reach 10 billion by 2050, yong
0: yeah thank you you asked a question just now we talked about supply destruction and things like that i think to certain extent we are pretty lucky because we operate on a basis where we try to source the local material as much as possible Mm -hmm. we produce locally and as much as possible we actually sell locally so the bulk of our productions across all the countries actually produce locally and we sell to the local population now, so you were that
1: you were a little bit buffered from all the supply chain disruptions because. of That's that.
0: right. Less so. Less so. Clearly, everybody is uh, affected by it, but certainly, I think we're in a much better position to weather that. And I think one of the key things to be able to sort of uh, fit fit the uh, Asian population, which probably what well, I think Asian population is about more than fifty percent of more than fifty percent of the world population. And and I think what we try to do is do it in a very efficient manner. That's the only way that you can do it. You do it in efficient manner. And obviously, efficiency is just one aspect. The other two aspects would be we have to provide safe and hygienic and reliable products. And obviously, you know, if you do it in the way that you don't care about environment, a non-sustainable basis, that's also not possible. So if you look at the way we operate, uh, we are very different from the other uh, non-corporatised uh, farmers. We call ourselves farmers, or livestock farmers, and uh, we pride ourselves to be a corporatized farmer uh, whereby we produce things in an efficient, efficient manner. And one of the key things that we embrace is actually technology. Mm-hmm. So we actually understand the science behind the technology and we try to be as efficient as possible. Just give me quickly, just some example, right? I think uh, compared to smaller farmers, they may be producing maybe say about 20 kilo of uh, milk
1: mm. per
0: cow per day, and we will be doing 40. So you can see the difference efficiency, right? Similarly, if you talk about pork production, know production of uh, piglets, uh, the small farmers may be producing maybe 15, 16 piglets uh, 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 per cycle, and we will be probably doing about 25. So it's true efficiency, we believe that, you know, to be able to feed the world population or Asian population about 4 billion, mm. and with the world population going to 10 billion, the That's only right. way is to actually embrace technology and to be efficient.
1: So you're a modern, corporatized farmer, very different uh, from some of the smaller players. Uh, but you talked about safety, and I want to swing back to Bavia for this one. On this note of safety, can you take us through the relationship that exists between the need to reduce emissions, meet ESG goals, sustainability, and specific food-related issues like safety? How do we then, uh, you know, ease some of the tensions within this space?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think this sector, food, agriculture, is really quite unique because it's in the middle of so many different sustainability issues, right? So um, we talk about safety and that's one of the I think prime things that the consumer seems to care about. But also things like nutrition, you know, we expect a higher standard of of labelling or a higher ethical standard that comes with it from the consumer. But then it's all the way through to let's say packaging and these these There are other themes that ESG caters for in this industry as well. But then when we go more to the investor in in these companies, um, the the ask there is really for climate, net zero, and to some extent, even biodiversity awareness in, in the actual supply chain. And the other objective that they're trying to solve for is actually labor management, to actually look at the practices to do with labor throughout. Um, ensuring that people get paid, ensuring that there are worker rights. Um, So we're trying to juggle a huge number of issues with this industry. And I think it's very unique compared to a lot of other industries where there are really two or three standout ones. But over here, it seems to be in the middle of everything. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I would say um, is is pretty, pretty clear is that more regulation is coming from that climate angle. And when it applies to agriculture, um, there is going to be a growing number of countries and a growing disparity between countries on how they um, implement this, but we need a whole host of ingredients from different countries and different jurisdictions in order to make our products. So it's gonna become more challenging going Mm -hmm. forward because you have this net zero drive that's coming along, but you also have a load of other factors that ESG and sustainability also wants to care about. But at the same time, our supply (coughs) chains and and the way we produce things right now, um, it's gonna be very interesting to see how they cope with this new around the regulation. And Asia is catching up pretty quickly. Um, even parts connected to Asia are trying to add a lot more climate regulation to specifically uh, this industry kind of going forward. Yeah.
1: So there seems to be a lot, a lot that has to be done. Uh, it's a big ask, uh, I think. But uh, before we go deep into that question, I want to thank you, uh, my audience, for submitting so many questions, lots of interesting ones. So let me pick up a few here. I know I'm supposed to tap on this and then say active. See, so I need to verbalize it and then I'll get it right. That's right, okay. So what are the top three things to do then or prioritize in view of the vulnerability in the space? How can we strengthen uh, you know, this particular arena given all the tensions that we're facing? Agna, would you like to take this question?
3: Sure, thank you. Um, well, I think the good news is that there are multiple solutions that can help to address this issue. One major challenge that we face is food waste, of course. About a third of all food food globally is wasted, whether it's crops that are rotting on farms or food that gets damaged during transportation or food that is simply thrown away by supermarkets or by consumers ourselves. We're consuming much more fresh food um, as, as well as food on the go. And those types of foods are much more perishable and have shorter shelf lives. So when, it, you know, when we consider all of the resources that have gone into producing it, the fact that a third of that gets wasted, it's clear that, you know, this is a problem that needs to be solved. I think one interesting solution is investment in better supply chain logistics. For example, grain handling storage um, uh, or grain handling uh, equipment or coal chain storage, um, as well as precision agriculture technology, which helps farmers with decisions like when to irrigate and when to harvest. Um, you know, it's it's something that can help lower the spoilage of crops on farms. When you reduce food waste in the supply chain, you're ensuring that more of it essentially reaches the end consumer. I think the pandemic also highlighted that those companies that had more control over their supply chains, those that were vertically integrated, fared a lot better. So I think looking ahead, I would expect companies to invest more in vertical integration. And then similarly, um, another solution is for supply chains to become much more local. Vertical farming is another fairly novel solution. It's, you know, you have a controlled environment, so inputs can be managed much more precisely. And uh, because it's a controlled environment, you don't need to protect the crops from pests, etc. So, you know, it's very promising for, for certain categories like vegetables as well as leafy greens.
1: Thank you for that, Agnes. So it's a combination of factors, uh, investing in better supply chain logistics like green storage handling, uh, investing in vertical integrations, integrative type of businesses, and even giving a try if you haven't already dabbled into vertical farming and more. Now, we've got to answer this question because it is so popular. Let's bring that up, please. Will Singapore be hit badly by food price inflation? Who would like to take that one? Bavia, you're looking at me and you're nodding. I think you have an answer.
2: (laughs) So, uh, I mean, I think it's sort of yeah, you know, the, the the unique thing here is obviously a lot of food does get, you know, imported in. And you see a lot of imported, you know, uh, in inflation coming in as well. But I think what's really unique here is, let's say, you know, the, the average diet here might be, you know, responsive to a different set of crops, a different set of supply chain as well. So, for instance, rice prices have been on the rise, but nowhere near as much. And the issues that have, let's say, hit that market have been, you know, more to do with, um, you know, part restrictions on uh, you know, fertilizers, um, not as much, let's say, to do with directly the events and the the crisis that's happening sort of in Europe right so it's a different set of it's it's a one problem but it's a different set of problems um which you know might be affecting us here as well but i think on, on imported goods um the, the answer seems to be be a one-way street um
0: yeah have you raised add. prices on your
1: products <laughs>
0: yeah actually we raise our prices in all columns to raw material prices and uh I think in, in 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 that is still a very small percent, a okay. very small portion of it. You know, raw material prices they tend to be a very small portion. Raw material food, I mean, uh, for the food, you know, raw material is actually a very small portion, rather than the end uh, end uh, food product. Especially, I think in Singapore being yet, it, it, it does have a very sort of high disposable income. So, in terms of portion of food consumption, uh, the, the the disposable on food is actually not that great. So. I don't think the impact is that severe.
1: Quite optimistic, then. A little bit of uh, food for know uh, comfort, right? Comfort to so hear on, that from on you.
0: One bear in the
2: room. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, but actually, this is stay. I want to stay with you, Yongnam, because I also wanted to ask you this question. Is it live? Can we bring up this question from the audience? Will the increasing adoption of plant-based or lab-grown meats impact conventional agricultural business models and profit margins? I mean, in the last one or two years, we've really seen, well, you've got your plant-based milks like Oatside and Oatly and all that, but we have seen lab-grown meats really coming into the spotlight. So how are agri-food companies like yours keeping up? Do you think they're encroaching into your space?
0: I'm pretty confident that, you know, the plant-based alternative, non-traditional meat protein is here to stay. But I I believe always there's always a position for that plant-based protein. There's always a position for traditional meat, Mm -hmm. And I I do believe that today, right, even without the inroad of plant-based protein, today, I think a lot of us here, especially in Asia, we're very used to plant-based protein. Yeah, and you may not know it by name. You may know it by name if I tell you it's called tofu. <laughs> you now all of us already have tofu, so it's yeah. not nothing new to us. So I do believe that is something here to stay. And if you look at a lot of uh, maybe less developed countries, and a lot of them actually have a huge part of the diet are already non-meat. Mm. You know, if you go to Indonesia, the tempeh, you know, which is equivalent to tofu, is a yeah. major part of protein. It's so that's absolutely too. nothing new at all. So I, I think we do see that it's here to stay. It's here; it's just another source of protein. Yeah. And in but there's it, always room for the traditional. Always there, so it's nothing new. And I, I, I think everybody have a position, and I think it will continue to grow alongside. Mm-hmm. Especially in, the, in Asia where the consumption of protein is actually still relatively small on a per capita basis. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a scope for all the segments of different type of proteins.
1: I like that. Still very confident. Thank you very much, uh, Yong Nang. Uh, Agna, you just heard the menu that we're having here in Singapore. Of course, we hope to host you in person next time so you can try uh, some of our local delicacies. But there is a specific question for you here, Agna. And I'm wondering if you could answer this one. From a portfolio management perspective, how will this growing problem on food security impact investment markets? And what what does this mean for investors?
3: The food and agriculture sector today is facing a number of very important sustainability challenges that need to be addressed. Um, You know, first of all, global... Global demographics are changing, the population is expected, as you say, to reach 10 billion people by 2050, which is an increase of about 25%, but then we need to produce about 50% more food between now and then. And not only will there be more mouths to feed, but typically as people accumulate more wealth, particularly in the emerging markets, they, they tend to consume more calories per capita. And these additional calories tend to come from animal proteins, which are very resource intensive something like 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock production. Um, And so, you know, we we believe that um, those, you know, that those companies which offer solutions to those types of challenges will be significant beneficiaries. Um, And so, for example, you already mentioned plant-based meats um, or plant-based products, as well as lab-grown meat. Um, interestingly in 2020 Singapore became the first country in the world to authorize the sale of lab grown meat Um, it's you know otherwise known as cell-based meat uh, which is grown in a bioreactor and and produced from actual animal cells I think you know one of the benefits there is that the it doesn't require the animal to be killed it's a lot less environmentally damaging and doesn't require the use of antibiotics um, and offers much better food safety because you have an you know controlled environment. so for a country like singapore a small nation that imports a lot of its food um investments in those kinds of technologies in in this kind of agri-tech are really key to ensuring food security it was um it was announced recently that a u.s company originally from san francisco is building the world's largest lab-grown bioreactor in singapore which is due to open in the first quarter of next year which will have the capacity to produce tens of thousands of pounds of meat from cells and so while the industry is still very early stage, um, it, you know it's facing lots of operational and cost challenges. It has made quite significant progress. So the very first lab-grown burger back in 2013 cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now um, that cost is down significantly. The company said that its chicken nuggets would sell in Singapore for about $50 each.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it looks like there's still a lot of uh, investment uh, opportunities on the horizon for uh, lab-grown needs. I, I know of a lab in Singapore that's now growing fish um, for fish fingers. Uh, anyway, we're going to wrap up uh, this panel because I know we're running short of time. So this panel is titled uh, Hurricane of Hunger. I wish we had more time to go through it, but essentially if there's one thing we could do to delay or prevent this hurricane of hunger, what would it be? Is it about Buffering or making sure that supply chains are more resilient, or what is it? Yong Lang, let's start with you.
0: I, I think this is uh, ugly sector is the probably last sector that is being impacted by technology and digitalization. but I think it's coming. So I think I think clearly as I said just now we are, we we embrace technology but I think next stage is really we need to embrace digitalization, sure. understanding that and trying to transform and use that to actually improve the technology further to transform the industry. That that would be my takeaway.
1: And uh, to be in the footsteps, go in the footsteps of modern corporatized farming like Japfa.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Yong Agna, and then I'll come to you, Bavier, for the yeah. closing. Agna. What do you think we should do to prevent the hurricane of hunger or delay it?
2: I think a lot of focus does go on to that alternative proteins uh, uh, sort of area. But reality is that the crisis that we have right now is still due to a lot of the staples, a lot of the core things that we currently use and the supply chain around that. So I would really echo that the the issues that we need to think about are not just within this industry, it's every single part of it. And it's how the supply chain gets managed more thoroughly. But also with the sustainability hat on, I think we do need to try and think about every single stage of this, uh, whether it's the labour management that's you know um, being tackled or whether it's a biodiversity or not, because there are controversy risks um, that are coming out now for this sector in every single space. So I don't think it's just... a matter of focusing on you know one specific area it is throughout the entire supply chain but the supply chain has proven to be just as important right now so focus
1: on the entire supply chain as well yeah. thank you and, and the controversy risks that we to need to look out for thank you bavia uh, agnel let me come to you then for your closing thoughts
3: absolutely i would agree with my fellow panelists um the challenges that we face in in the production of food exists across all parts of the value chain and so therefore the solutions likewise exist across the multiple points of the value chain um, whether it's about making it more resilient or um uh, you know digitalizing i think that what we're encouraged by is just how many different types of solutions exist
1: thank you for that uh, agna uh once again a big thank you to my panelists.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Bank of Singapore.